You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome to the Bridge to You podcast, hosted by yours truly, Monique Russell, where we focus on diversity, inclusion, and understanding for Black cultures through conversations that help us connect to ourselves and each other. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bridge to You podcast. I'm your host, Monique Russell. Today, we have an amazing lady that we are speaking to today. She believes in the power of creativity and connectivity. She's an academician. She is the head of the Ethics, Peace, and Human Rights at American University, a conflict resolution consultant whose work has been expressed in several countries, Europe, Africa, and North America. She is a survivor of genocide and the author of Narratives of Victimhood and Perpetration. My goodness, what a powerful woman we have in the chair today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Claudine Kurdesenge McLeod. Hi, thank you for having me. So I always like to ask my guest, Dr. Claudine, the first thing is, if you could choose to be anywhere in the world right now at this very moment, where would you choose to be and why? That's a tough question. Um, I have three different places in mind right now. The first one will be Brussels in Belgium. Mm -hmm. And that is because I haven't seen my family in over three years because of COVID. Wow. So I, I need some family love right now. And that's where most of the people I really love actually leave. So definitely Brussels. The second place I'll say Salvador de Bahia in Brazil. And that's because it is a sunny place. It's warm. The food is amazing. The people are amazing. And it is a piece of home away from home. It's a very Afrocentric place is where Brazil was discovered that was the first place slavery really started in Brazil and so you can imagine how extremely Afrocentric it is extremely Afro-conscious and also because I play capoeira and that's where kind of capoeira is from if you look at it like the Brazilian capoeira that's where it is from and then the third place I'll say Rwanda just because that's where I'm from and I left a piece of my heart there when I left, and um, I need that piece of my heart. So I also wonder. Oh my gosh! So I have never been to any of these places on your list. <laughs> so you've given me places to explore. I love to travel, um, and so I didn't know that you were a capoeira professional as well. Why did you get into that? Like, how did you get into that whole um, art form? 
I'm not sure if I'm a professional, but um, I've traveled to Brazil several times and I've always been fascinated by Afro dances and uh, Afro culture. And when I was in Brazil, I discovered the Candomblé religion, which kind of led me to discover Capoeira. And then when I came back to the U.S., I realized that we actually had some Capoeira groups here. And I actually discovered my husband in one of those Capoeira groups. So, um, yeah, I think it's just one of those places you go and visit and then you find something that's just exceptional. You're like, I want it. I want to learn. And now it's been, I think it's been seven, eight years now. Wow. See, look at that. I want to learn too. I want to learn all of it. Um, And speaking of learning, um, I came across some content around diaspora consciousness. This is something Mm -hmm. that you have been speaking on, you've been teaching on, and I want to just get right into it. Like, what is that? Why is it important to you? Um, What is it? We have immigrants all over the world, right? We have pieces of different countries in every other country. And the the idea of diaspora consciousness is really kind of these interesting spaces where those immigrants create a piece of home in the country they live in, coming from cultural practices to uh, religious by creating churches, by building churches, cultural centers, having restaurants. It's really kind of recreating a piece of your home in the country you live in. But it's also a mental and emotional process where you are, in some ways, you pledge allegiance to two different places. And this idea of consciousness is being torn between who you are currently in this country you live and who you are in the country you come from and how those two things kind of clash to create Uh, who you are as a person, what type of news you consume, what type of entertainment you consume, and also what type of social and political engagement you you have, you get involved in. So really the idea of diaspora consciousness is understanding the power of uh, the different immigration processes that happen in the country, the power of the different community to create peace, to change political systems, or to create violence in different countries. And um, how I got into that, I was born in Rwanda, grew up in Belgium, moved to the US as an adult. That was kind of my, my own emotional and physical process. That is who I am, I am a diaspora person. And it was really about understanding what I wanted to do with my life, uh, what type of professional I wanted to be, and then how I can reconcile my own trauma and help other people deal with their own trauma and existential questions. Mm. We're going to get into those questions deeper um, around like the practices you teach and coming to embrace that trauma that you've experienced. Because I think this is a very, very powerful concept for our audience. Before I get there, I want to ask you, so when you think about the different places that are a part of you, You mentioned that consciousness is about recreating a part of your home. How have you been able to recreate a part of your home, your homes, (laughs) uh, uh, where you currently are now? So I'm currently in the D.C. area and I am the only member of my family 
that's actually here. So the way I have recreated my home is through my work in terms of like teaching. There are a lot of things I really focus on in my classes to make sure that I'm deconstructing all those biases and all those misconceptions about Africa and what African people look like should act and just the way we actually talk about Africa, especially in the field of peace and conflict, we have a lot of stereotyping, a lot of white supremacist ideas when we talk about Africa. So kind of helping to deconstruct that to make sure that I'm teaching the next leaders, the next academic, the next professional in a more conscious way in their work and their narrative. Um, but also like my home, my home is extremely African. I have like African art everywhere. My son, he has two middle names and both of them are extremely typical Rwandan. So I kind of try to take the, the best out of my culture and create an environment around me that will remind me of that culture. And I also speak to him in um, Kinyaranda as much as I can. But also professionally, I made sure that I was looking at my home, not just as Rwanda, but also as Africa and educating people on what that actually means. Now that is deep. Like going outside of just that local, your local country to now on a continental level, that's another shift in consciousness, I should say, or a shift in awareness. Uh, You're giving us some amazing gems here. And I feel like um, I want to go and unpack it because you talked about taking the best of our cultures and recreating that where we are. Sometimes in our history, we have the worst of our cultures. And those are pieces that I feel people tend to shy away from. It's difficult. It's hard to discuss. Uh, We don't want to embrace it. And that is why I absolutely love talking to you because You are an expert in the conflict and peace resolution negotiation space. And so I want our audience to really learn the tips, the tools, the strategies, and from your experience, how to embrace those parts of our culture that may not be the best. How do you, how do you do that? Do you deny recreating those pieces in your home because they don't serve you? Like, what are your thoughts around that? So in order to answer that question, I have to explain several things. First, you know that I'm from Rwanda. Rwanda were known for genocide. That's literally the only reason people know who we are. They don't even know where we are located on an African map. Most of them don't even know that Africa is a continent. Anyway, that's a different conversation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But a lot of people know who we are because of the genocide, which is already extremely traumatic. Second thing, I am Hutu. Hutu are the ones that committed the genocide. And um, a lot of people I know in my own communities talk about themselves as just being African or being Rwandan. A lot of them do not admit that they are Hutu because of the stigma and because of the, the, the narrative around perpetration in our communities. One thing I realized when I was working on myself and one thing I realized when I was researching my own communities and doing the work I do is how harmful narratives are. Narratives are powerful to create a good stories, but they're also extremely harmful and traumatic when you pick and choose 
what narrative you want to tell and what narrative is going to be important to you. So it is essential to look at all the different narratives present in a specific situation and understand how they were created. Like the really the kind of the fabric of those narratives, the different stories that compose each one of them and accept that not everything will be perfect. Not everything will be happy, but everything needs to be part of the conversation in order to make sure that the mistakes I am making as an adult are not going to be the mistake my son is going to make or his children, right? And that is why I'm not saying you have to embrace all of them because it is hard, but you have to acknowledge that there is a lot of good, bad, and ugly, and you have to take time to look at all of them, you know, to make sure that you are not creating the same situation that potentially led to the Rwandan genocide. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's really, really good. When you said everything needs to be a part of the conversation, that really stood out for me um, because you know, this show is really about diversity and inclusion among Black cultures. And what a, what a great example of what we're talking about today, right now, diversity and inclusion among Black cultures. But now with the, the nuance and the twist around the harm, well, I'll use your words, victim and the perpetrator, right? And I think about how this is also applicable or an overlay to racial racial conversations, the, you know, a vic- the victim and the perpetrator, um, colonial times and um, slavery. And so there are a lot of times where that conversation is difficult. It's hard. And you're saying everything must be a part of the conversation and examine all of the narratives, not just one narrative, because you know, it won't be perfect. Um, it, it can be messy, but you must acknowledge all parts of that conversation. Tell me a little bit about what you discovered when you were doing your research around the victimhood and the perpetrator narrative um, from the genocide and what you what you learned and how that's applicable today. I think two things are essential here. The first one is that we are all victims in our own stories and we are our perpetrators in other people's stories. So we have to, in some ways, understand the positionality of the way we see ourselves and the way other people see us, right? The second thing that is essential that's connected to the first one is that we often talk about narrative of victims and perpetrators. And what I try to do is actually talk about narrative of victimhood and narrative of perpetrations. And those for me are different, right? In one specific event, you do have a victim and perpetrator, right? But events are extremely connected. So something that happens today will be connected to something that will happen tomorrow and something that happened in the, in the past too. And the roles we play in all those different events are different. So for example, a victim today might be a perpetrator tomorrow. And perpetration tomorrow is connected to their sense of victimhood today. So by talking about victimhood and perpetration, you are in some ways acknowledging that 
nobody is fully innocent and nobody is fully evil. Like the, the understanding of evil should not be attached to people. It should be attached to acts we all can commit eventually, but not to the actual individual understanding of the fabric of their humanity. So one thing I discover in my work is that a lot of the actions we take are based on grievances we have. The grievances we have are based on either misunderstanding or based on our interpretation of specific event that happened to us. So based on all those different things, misunderstanding and misinterpretation, the action we're going to take today will victimize someone else and will put us in a perpetration like for that specific person. If you take the context of the, the genocide, I focus on the Rwandan and the Bosnian because those happen approximately the same time in the early, mid-1990s. They had the same processes in terms of international intervention uh, and then post-genocide um, in terms of like the different uh, tribunals that were put together, different initiatives that, were, that kind of happened in both cases. What I realized was that everyone saw themselves as victim, even those who had committed acts. They saw themselves as victim because they could pinpoint a time in their history where they were victimized by the other one. And those who were victim at that time, which was 20 some years ago, now have the power to be the perpetrator of those who were perpetrated at that time. And you are seeing the tables being turned extremely fast in like one or two generations, Max. And uh, it is, as I said, essential to then look at the whole picture, look at all the different narratives, because if you don't, those who are being victimized today, will be like, listen, I have a story to tell where you did something to me that gives me the right to do something back to you. Mm. There's uh, so many powerful things that came out of that. Um, when you say we're all victims in our own stories and perpetrators in other stories, um, and that the understanding should be attached to acts and not people. These are essential things that we have to embrace. You know, I, I've had some people who, and I'm using it to, in the racial context, uh, white people who've expressed to me that their families have been a part of committing atrocities towards Black people, but they don't want to talk about it. They're afraid about it. Um, there's a lot of shame and guilt and um, embarrassment around being associated or affiliated, even though it wasn't them directly, um, being connected in any way, shape, or form. And what I'm hearing from you is like understanding the role of victimhood in the grand scheme of everything. But then at some point you feel like, okay, how do we now move from this place of understanding the victimhood uh, narrative to actually talking about it? Because people don't want to talk about it. How did you get to this point where you're open to talking about, you know, the whole aspect of genocide, this whole conversation when so many people are afraid or don't even want to um, associate themselves with this? Um, education, what I did was asking questions that will relate to me. So 
if I had a question about my own existence, about my own experience, I would go and try to see if other people had the same question. And we're just kind of trying to educate ourselves based on the fact that we had admitted that we had questions, that there were a lot of gaps in our understanding and that we were creating a space where we were not judging each other, we're trying to learn from each other. So for me, education has been a huge part of my own personal growth and my also professional growth. And as I mentioned, being from a group that is seen as the bad one, there are a lot of things that was extremely uncomfortable with. There are a lot of questions nobody wanted to even like acknowledge that those questions existed. There were a lot of people I was afraid to talk to because of that. And I think most importantly, it was a huge step for me to be like, okay, let me talk to someone else. Like, let me just make that step to talk to someone, right? And um, I, I think it's the acknowledgement that you might not be responsible for something, but you are part of a group that hurt people. What does that mean for the people that were hurt? What does that mean for you and your group? And what type of educational process you as a person has to go through? And how can you help your group go through that same educational process? Um, going back to the, the racial uh, conversation, like I grew up in Belgium. Belgium was one of the worst empire in terms of in Africa. Like literally in the early 1900s, like they were slaughtering Congolese, they had colonies all over. They had human zoo, like actual zoo in Brussels with Congolese kids living in the zoo and white Belgium will go and feed them bananas. What? Like, yeah, like they had things like that, right? So the question around race, it is not a US problem. It happened all over Europe. This week in my genocide class, we're talking about Germany and what they did in Namibia, how they literally slaughtered and like starved people. So that question of race is not unique to the U.S. I think what's unique in the U.S. is how the conversations around race and how still present it is in the consciousness, right? But um, one thing that I've seen that's been extremely harmful for everybody when it comes to race is the lack of actual accurate education and acknowledgement. Uh, and you have a lot of countries right now that are going through that process of admitting that things happen. Again, going back to Belgium, they are slowly admitting that bad things have happened in the history. They are not necessarily admitting that it was a genocide, but they're admitting that they have made millions and billions of dollars on the back of people who literally had nothing except their life and things like that. So I think, as I mentioned, an actual accurate representation of what happened and a willingness to educate yourself as someone who is part of the group that created and perpetrated the actions and also a willingness to help your community understand the differences between feeling ashamed of what happened 
and feeling guilty and then actually accepting that it is not your story right now. It is time for those who have to heal to actually go through that process. And you, in some ways, have the burden to create an environment that will allow them to heal. Wow. 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 Dr. Claudine, this is why I say you are a pioneer. You are a front runner in this conversation because it's a conversation that's not had frequently. It's not had in a way where people can digest it or understand without so much of the heightened and tensed emotion that goes around it, right? Um, just as humans, we, we tend to have those emotions, even if we're not directly impacted, everything we're impacted by, but may not be directly impacted. But to hear you talk about your own journey, um, that an education awareness and having the courage to talk to somebody else, helping the community to create that understanding as well. I think this is the way forward. I don't really know if we be able to have so much of accurate historical knowledge because there's so much that's been confuddled and muzzled and whatever. But for what we do have, um, I feel it, it is essential for us to continue to explore and lean into the difficult conversations. Because even as I'm talking to you today, I can feel within my body that emotion moving through the challenge of having to go through your own self-awareness, the courage to have the conversation when you're in that space. So I applaud you. I commend you for that. Um, I know that my audience will take away from this conversation insights to begin to have their own conversations. And I want to ask you before we begin to start to wrap up, if there's anything that you'd like to share uh, with the audience that we have not touched on today. One advice I will give to people, and I give that to a lot of my students and people I've talked to, is don't look at the U.S. as a unique country. And that goes to the experience. Like I'm teaching a social movement and social protest class. Right now we're going through Black liberation, right? And one thing I'm encouraging in my class is that there's a lot of history, especially African-American history, that is not in the U.S. You have a lot of intellectual, um, African intellectuals who have done amazing work tracing African-American history, embracing a lot of the, the, the Black liberation movement and have really kind of influenced a lot of the social consciousness in this country. So for students and anyone who is in the process of kind of embracing their own history, I often encourage them, look at expanding what you are learning to look at the broader experience, like the African or the Black experience, and how that has shaped our consciousness as just people who are experiencing similar dynamic. Like slavery in the U.S. was completely different than colonization, but the same mentality we used, the same type of crimes we used. So there is a, a consciousness that exists among our Black communities that in some way should be brought together for an understanding of our journey and how to fight against oppression. 
Mm, that's deep. So there is the similarity in that consciousness. I love that. And with that, I will say to the listeners, make sure that you listen to this show at least seven times, because <laughs> with repetition, you are bound to get more nuggets and more insights into how to have conversations that are difficult and to dive deeper into the experience of Black cultures. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show today, Dr. Claudine. Um, and those that are listening, until next time, take care and be well. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Bridge to You podcast. Visit clairecommunicationsolutions.com or connect with me on LinkedIn, Monique Russell, or Instagram at Clear Communication Coach. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.